Well, I'm very excited today to have uh, Peter Kazodoy, uh, author of Honest to Greatness. I love the title and I like the look of the book and so forth. And Peter, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me. So Peter, tell us about your background and your own entrepreneurial experience, uh, because your book, when people read that book, you've done some very interesting things, worked with some very interesting clients and have some great observations. Yeah, well, thank you for saying that. Uh, my story starts in the unusual place. I was a, an extremely competitive figure skater, actually. Uh, had Olympic aspirations, just like all my peers. And uh, actually, one of the first times I had to learn the hard way about brutal honesty and getting honest with myself was uh, when at 17, I was on this you know, Olympic track, I, I, these big high hopes. And I also was really dead set on uh, going to Harvard. I, I grew up outside of Boston and uh, I had several family members go and that was just, you know, that was just what happened, right? Um, at 18, it became clear that I was not going to the Olympics. I was not good enough. It was not going to happen. Uh, I applied to Harvard. Harvard sent me a nice letter back saying, uh, you know, thank you, but no thank you. And uh, it, was, it was a devastating time. Now, the good thing about that is uh, I got out of college in 2008, you know, lucky me, right? Financial meltdown. And those two big chips I had developed on my shoulder actually fueled my being able to uh, get out, start a company, instantly go tens of thousands of dollars into debt, but then eventually grow that company over the next uh, eight years into a multi-million dollar uh, marketing agency that was uh, on the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing companies in America for a couple years in a row. Worked with everyone from startups to a couple Fortune 500 and even threw a party for Warren Buffett once. So it's been a, been a wild ride from figure skating days to uh, international entrepreneur. And, and did you end up selling that company? No, still own it. Yeah, we still do do great work. I mean, we've certainly pivoted over the years. I mean, my gosh, we've probably done seven or eight pivots over the, the course of, you know, from startup to now. Um, luckily, and it is luck, not foresight, we had already gone virtual before all of this happened. And most of our work is in the digital space. So, you know, serendipity, sometimes our companies are just positioned well. Five years ago, if this pandemic had come around, we would have been in a, a, a very difficult time. Let's just say that. And uh, has the coronavirus been, how has it been in terms of getting clients and servicing them? Yeah, I mean, certainly we're, we're going to be net down. You know, we're not going to have any sort of up year. Um, but again, because we were already looking towards the future, I mean, one of the, the sectors we work with is the manufacturing sector, um, helping them bring their sales process online. Well, now they can't go sell $5 million at the trade show. So it's kind of like, well, here we are. Um, and that's been really fruitful. I literally just got off a, a discussion with a, a prospect talking about, hey, now that virtual trade shows are coming, how do you even set up your web presence to take advantage of that? So listen, if you're going to be an entrepreneur like me, you have to see the silver lining and everything. Otherwise you just quit, right? So I've gotten very good at, at being honest about what those nuggets are and what I need to do to change and, and capitalizing as quickly as possible. So tell us about why you wrote this book. Well, uh, the thing about writing a book about honesty, Mark, is I get to be honest. So uh, I actually never set out to write about, speak about, or frankly, even care about honesty. Uh, I set out to write a marketing book. And so, you know, during our tenure of growing the company, I was always fascinated and couldn't explain this very weird phenomenon that would occur. On the one hand, we had, you know, clients that we would go into their business and we would do, you know, focus groups and interviews with all their frontline employees and customers and unearth all these insights, right? What they think of the company, what they think is true. 
And we would bring them back to the executive team. The executive team would look at them and say, oh yeah, this is great. All right, let's do it. And we would get into the work and they would just explode. I mean, they, five, six times ROI, they'd stay with us for years. It was wonderful, right? Now, another camp of clients, and this happened so many times I can't count, we'd do the same thing. Same love, care, attention, insights, interviews. Hey, this is what your frontline employees are saying. This is what your customers are saying. And the executive team would look at all this data and they would just like explode on the launch pad. I mean, they descended into politics and infighting and BS. And I just remember sitting in some of these meetings being like, these people are a bunch of morons. Now, that wasn't true, Mark. That was me being a moron, right? No executive rises to be a C-suite exec in a $100 million company by being stupid, right? What I ended up realizing over many years is that many uh, is that often leaders and i use that term loosely in this case become dishonest and i don't mean they are outright lying to others for their own gain i mean they're, they've become dishonest in the ways that i define it in the book you know, either about what's going on in the world and how consumer trends are shifting how technology is changing or they've got grown dishonest about what their other executives uh, know and, and feel and what their own customers are saying and, and what the others around them are trying to tell them. Or they've grown dishonest with themselves, you know, with their own biases and self-limiting beliefs and ego and all these other blockers to success. And, and I was just so fascinated by it. And I used to think I was all alone in this until uh, I decided after building a seven-figure company that I had a lot more to learn. So I went back to Columbia to get an MBA. And uh, at that time, we had already actually uh, you know, done some work for, for Berkshire Hathaway and Warren. And of course, he went to Columbia, studied value investing there. That, that was how he got his whole, you know, uh, whole career kickstarted. And he actually has a name for this phenomenon. Like, I thought I was alone. I was like, am I the only person who sees it? Like, this is so weird, right? Business school doesn't teach us about uh, you know, how to deal with executives that can't see the truth. I missed that class, right? That, that <laughs> class didn't exist. Um, and, and Warren Buffett actually has a name for it. He calls it the institutional imperative, describing how organizations and their leaders just get stuck rolling down the bowling alley, unable to get honest about what's going on, what needs to change, what's happening between their ears that may be actually harmful to the entire organization. And that's why I wrote a book about it. I mean, I like to tell people, write a book about something that really pisses you off that you want to change. And so I actually couched it as a marketing book, back to your original question. And uh, I queried 400 literary agents, 397 of them either didn't respond or got back to me and said, you'll never be an author. You suck. Please never email me again. Three <laughs> took a meeting and one signed me. And as soon as he signed me, he was like, Peter, you know, just so you know, um, this isn't a book about marketing. It's a book about honesty. And I said, well, clearly you can't read because it doesn't say anything about honesty on the front page of my book proposal. And so I went home and I'm looking through it and I was like, damn, he's absolutely right. This is much bigger than just how does an organization communicate. It's how does an organization set itself up? What does it believe? How does it act? And how the leaders within it act? And, and how do they weaponize honesty, use it to achieve outcomes in their businesses? I've written six books. I got to get your agent because your agent's smart. He gave you great advice or she he's, gave you great advice. Wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So in the book, uh, and let's start talking about the story between Blockbuster and Netflix. I think everybody will enjoy that story and the mistakes. People like Blockbuster, which happen every day in corporate America. Every day. You know, what's interesting is everyone knows what happened. Everyone knows the conclusion of the story that Netflix put Blockbuster out of business, essentially. What they don't realize is that Blockbuster had years and years 
and opportunity after opportunity to do something about it, to say to themselves, gee, you know, Netflix is up and coming. Maybe people don't like coming into our stores. Maybe they don't like paying all those late fees. Gee, weird. And so they had opportunities to buy Netflix. They had opportunities to partner with Netflix. In fact, eventually, late in the game, but eventually John Antioco, who's the CEO of Blockbuster, uh, decided to, to start his own DVD through the mail business. It was called Total Access. They had up to about 2 million subscribers at one point, catching up. And in comes an activist investor. And, uh, you know, who everyone, by the way, I mean, you know, well-known name, everyone lauds him for his, uh, his incredible work. But he came in, he said, nope, this is not how Blockbuster makes money. Uh, fired Antioco, installed another CEO, brought all the old ways back. And over the next couple of years, they lost the equivalent of the GDP of Monaco. Not because they're stupid, but because they were unable to get honest about what had changed and what they needed to do to survive. And now Blockbuster has sort of faded into 1990s Americana, and it doesn't have to be that way. I also think that when finance people take over tops of companies, that they look and say, wow, we got all this investment in all these uh, locations, and we have all these franchisees, and if we do it this way, uh, then what's going to happen? And then they stay the course and say, well, we'll ride it until we really have to change. And by that time, it's too late. Too late. And, and you're underwater, which is what happens every time finance people kind of take over these businesses. Yeah. So um, people talk about the concept of leaders being honest with themselves. Uh, you know, how does a, a leader ensure themselves of being honest with themselves? And what does that all mean? Yeah, well, it's, it's super dangerous to be a successful person, particularly in, in corporate America, but also as an entrepreneur, right? Why? Because folks only have retrospect. They succeed and succeed and succeed and look back and they say what? Well, clearly everything I do think, feel, and believe is correct, propels me to success. And the problem is that that type of mindset actually creates closed-mindedness, the opposite of what the leaders in my book use, from Ray Dalio at Bridgewater Associates to Jay Farner at Quicken Loans to Russell Wiener at Domino's Pizza. All these folks have one thing in common, which is that they are the first to admit that they are stupid, literally. I mean, read Ray Dalio's book on the first page. He literally says, I am a dumb shit. That, by the way, is what has made folks successful. Really, really, I don't mean, you know, mid-market success. I mean like explosive industry dominating results. It has to come from, I don't know. You know, one, one of the best stories I tell in the bookmark is about Quicken Loans. And to ensure against executives becoming entrenched in their belief systems, they have a whole code of conduct rules by which they conduct their culture called the isms. That's what they call them. Um, and they have rules like, you know, it's not about who is right. It's about what is right. And say yes before no. Seems logical, but how different are those from what goes on in traditional corporate America, where it's all about, well, who is saying it? It's all about the political will of people wielding their authority. It's all about people being gatekeepers instead of gate openers. And that's why Quicken was able to invent Rocket Mortgage. By the way, propelled them to number one in the mortgage industry past their much bigger and at the time publicly traded rivals who should have invented Rocket Mortgage way before Quicken did but they couldn't get out of their own way. And it all comes back to how honest we're willing to be about those systems, about the culture we've built, about the amount of BS that floats around our offices. It's all about honesty. 
And hence why the Fortune, uh, the Fortune 500, there's only what, two or three companies left from the original Fortune 500. It, it's like what you just said, shouldn't that be like the massive like bell ringing in our head saying, hey, maybe there's something we, should, we shouldn't succumb to Warren's institutional imperative. We should maybe remain open-minded. Yeah, no. Nope. Um, what leaders do you think represent honest leadership? I mean, there's so many. I mean, one, one of my favorites really is Warren Buffett and, and Charlie Munger. They just, be, I love them because anyone who's read any of their books or the shareholder letters can see that they frequently call out absolutely inane corporate practices that happen all the time. And they sort of take like, I, I really resonate with them because I'll look, I'll come out of some of these meetings. I'm just like, I don't get it. I don't even get how this happens, how a company could get to a place where they put on their wall that they have a core value of speed and then they take eight months to do anything. Like nobody, what's, what's wrong here, right? <laughs> what's wrong here? And they, they have a wonderful way of pointing out those things and saying, one of us is crazy and we know it's not me. And that's how they've continued to be able to buy companies that make sense, to remain in their words, immune as possible to the institutional imperative. Um, and and it's, it's not difficult. It's just, I think what, dissuades us, Mark, is when we look around, say you work in the average big company, you know, a company with uh, even 500 employees or more, because there's so many uh, examples of bad, right? So many examples of dishonesty and all the ways I define it in my book. I think we become uh, sort of complacent to it. We think, well, this is normal, right? But it's not normal, people. Like, what I hope is that people read this and wake up and they start to have conversations about like, we're just sitting in our own crap right now. And it's not, it's not helping. It's actually damaging to the organization. I tell stories of uh, Bethany Frankel, who went from real housewife of New York to selling a nine-figure alcohol brand. Uh, how? Because she literally is the first to admit that, that she has no idea. She's like, I just don't know. She was telling me this through backstage at, at Adweek and I was writing for Inc. Magazine at the time and I'm interviewing her and she's just telling me like, I'm so honest about what I don't know and I don't know so much. And lo and behold, uh, literally 20 minutes later, she's on a panel. She's the only female, all these, you know, traditional guy, uh, 50 year old ad execs. And she heard a term that she didn't understand, a marketing term, and she shut down the whole show. She stood up. She's like, no, no, everybody stop, stop. And she went over. She's like, I don't know what that means. Tell me what that means. Can you imagine? I mean, of course, someone with that modus operandi is going to do nothing but continually learn day after day, moment after moment. That honesty creates greatness. And, and over and over again, not only do leaders have that mindset, but organizations do that we are not gonna, not only are we not gonna rest on our laurels, but we're not even gonna rest on what we think is even true about our industry, about our product, about our service, about our customers. We're going to keep exploring and keep learning. It, it, it's that simple and it's that challenging. I, I, I met her before and, and she said that um, guys who rise up, especially men who rise up through big corporations are embarrassed to say when they don't know something. And she said, entrepreneurs, we're not embarrassed to say when we don't know something because we're so interested in learning. And I, th and I think that's what happens for a lot of these companies. Yep, exactly uh, right. You gave great examples and you talked about one with Blockbuster who realized he made a mistake and then uh, did the reboot and then got booted himself that's right. for actually doing the smart thing. I was a Blockbuster member and I thought, 
God, I think I'm switching over to Netflix. But then they were starting their program. And I said, oh, you're getting the best of both worlds. You can get it in the mail and go to the store. That's right. I said, that's brilliant. And then he was gone. And then they got rid of that home program. It didn't make sense. How can someone look long-term? This was his problem. Look long-term when investors are focused on short-term. Because Carl Icahn, that's the guy, uh, the private equity guy, he's typically focused on the short-term. And the whole system is dishonest. I mean, one of the, the uh, wonderful, amazing interviewees is uh, Dan Hesse, who's a former CEO of Sprint. Turned Sprint around from the brink of bankruptcy to you know number one customer satisfaction for years in a row. It was an amazing story. And at one point, he had to tear down the infrastructure uh, left over from the Sprint and Nextel merger. He didn't have to do that. You know, as a leader, he could have milked his stock options and gone a couple quarters, you know, probably even 18 or 24 months and just sort of done the bare minimum and reaped whatever profits and he would have gotten some fat bonuses and that would have been that. But he didn't. You know, he said to the quarterly analyst, you're not going to like this. My stockholders are not going to like this, but this is what the business needs to survive long term. And by the way, to be honest, to act honestly is only to think long term in a world that unfortunately thinks short-term. Now, we know we think short-term as humans, right? There's probably a really good evolutionary reason for this. I can't spend a week building my hut on the plateau because I need to eat, right? If I don't eat, then I'm gonna die. That makes sense, right? But we are smarter than that. We can actually set up our world to be more focused on the long-term. One of the movements I'm very happy to see, and I think will continue, is the abolishment of quarterly earnings and quarterly forecast guidance. It's crazy. What the heck happens in three months? You can't do anything in three months. Um, and what happens is we, we incentivize folks to do really bad things for the sake of having quarter after quarter of high performance. And while there's a lot we can't control, we can control the incentives that we set up. We can make the incentives more honest if we're more thoughtful and deliberate about the way we set up the system as a whole. So yeah, it's shocking that many of these uh, investors are so short-term focused. And now you could argue that's, that's their game, right? So then as a corporation, how do you, again, set up protocols to ensure that that doesn't happen to you? Um, because if you're one thing, you know, back, back to Warren Buffett, one thing that's made him successful, the man thinks in like 20, 50 year time horizons, you know? Right. And he goes, what people don't realize is Warren Buffett goes through periods of time where he does absolutely nothing except like read and shake people's hands. He doesn't make a business move at all because it's just, you don't need to. If you're thinking long-term on these big horizons, you can be patient for an opportunity and then take advantage of the opportunity and be patient, you know? And a lot of the companies in my book that I profile are exactly the same way. They set up really honest guardrails, right? The bumpers on the bowling alley. And then they just keep churning along, being open-minded, incorporating something when they find something good, you know, nothing flashy uh, and it works. I have to say it's amazing uh, that Elon Musk has now, uh, Tesla is now worth more than Toyota and GM combined. And he stuck to a long-term vision and has been rewarded for uh, a long-term vision, which is kind of rare. Uh, but he rare. also has that rock star image. Uh, and, but everything he does, right, is long-term. Space, loops, uh, the uh, hyperloop to connect. Everything is not about three months or six months or a year. It's five, 10, 20 years uh, down the road because, my God, they're selling a fraction of the cars 
just the Toyota selling. It's, Toyota sells like 9 million cars and he's selling what, like 500,000 cars? Yeah. Well, he's a wonderful example, Mark, because folks, when they see his story, and you're absolutely right, he only thinks long-term. And then look at his career. Look what he's been able to accomplish. The long-term isn't as long as we think. It comes a lot faster, especially now at the, the pace of change. So you know, to think short-term, really, it doesn't even make any sense in a world that's moving this fast. Yeah, and, and, and they all could have been way ahead of him, just like Uber and Lyft got ahead of the taxi cabs. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, the taxi should have been doing this a long time ago. Yeah, where's and Ford and GM and all this? Like what happened? You know? yeah. yeah, I think again, it's finance people saying we made this investment, we got to monetize this investment for as long as we can, as opposed to cannibalizing their own business. The sunk and, cost fallacy. That's exactly yeah. right. And, that, and all the newspapers have done that too. You know, when you told them, oh, yeah. I remember meeting with the Inquirer people and saying, you should go to these large Kindles. And because you don't even have to go out and get wet or your newspaper doesn't end up in somebody else's lawn. You wake up next to you and your paper's there and they're like, ah, oh, people still like to feel the touch of paper. And now where are they at now? You know, just the New York Times and Washington Post are really the only major paper surviving. Everybody I think else you mean I think you up. mean the New York Times and Amazon, right? Ah, uh, yeah, <laughs> the New York Times and Amazon. So in in your book, you talk about how people like Bernie Madoff, and and you don't mention him, but people like Shane Smith yeah. uh, from Vice and Elizabeth Holmes um, may manage to fool such sophisticated people, and they were forward thinking and so forth. So how's that happen? So one of the, the first chapter in the book, which was not the first chapter and credit to my editor, she was like, you got to, this is the one to, to lead with. The name of the first chapter is fraud is our fault. When we look at headlines on the news and believe them without diving into the research, when we react emotionally to our great aunt Betty's Facebook post, when we succumb to our own mentality in our head and our own belief systems, we empower the fraud in our world and in our minds. It's very important to note that because we are social creatures. We love to look for social proof. We love to follow the herd. It makes us feel included and validated. The problem is it's a really dangerous way to go about business because take the case of uh, Elizabeth Holmes, right? Um, you know, and for those of you who don't know, swindled investors out of hundreds of millions and billions of dollars with Theranos and a blood uh, testing thing that never worked. And the problem is once she had one big name investor or one big name backer, she got another one and another one and another one. And at each level, the investor is less and less willing to go behind the scenes and do their due diligence. They just say, well, it was good enough for them. It's good enough for us. By the way, anyone who's raising money understands this and, and, and has gone through this, right? The first investor is the hardest. Every other investment group is waiting. Oh, tell me when you get your first investor, then we'll invest. Right. Is that not the most dishonest, ridiculous thing you've ever heard in your entire life? This, yeah. is a, this is an industry predicated on finding the next big idea that's looking around at their competitors to be the leader. Why is nobody like, this is one of those things, Mark, I was talking about earlier. It's like, what is wrong with this picture? And it, it, it actually empowers fraud because they assume, right? You have a bunch of people assuming that everyone else is doing the right due diligence and then they miss the boat and they wonder why, you know, only one out of 25 investments they make actually goes the distance, you know, because most of the other stuff is just, you know, sort of BS rubber stamping. 
people need to understand how powerful herd mentality is, how powerful social proof is. And do your own due diligence. Yes, it takes more work. No, you can't be lazy and just accept things coming at you. But I'm sorry, we live in a world where we, can't, we can no longer simply blindly trust the things coming at us. It can't work that way. And until we all take personal responsibility for the truth, we as a society won't be able to move forward based on what's true versus what other folks are trying to persuade us of. I love the story. And I want you to tell the people the story about the fake restaurant called The Shed. And, <laughs> I love and is that, that rare, by the way? <sighs> I, I hope so. So, uh, gosh, what a, what a great story. So in England, there was a, a brand new restaurant that was going to open called The Shed. And it was such a coveted dining spot that for the months leading up to it, it had already rocketed to the number one restaurant. TripAdvisor hadn't even opened yet. They had a waiting list for reservations. I mean, you, you'd call, you'd be put on hold. You could not get in. Opening night, this young British couple were lucky enough to get a table. And they were, they told everyone, all their friends, family. So they're in the car and they're heading there. I've uh, got the you know, map open and they're driving through a pretty ordinary suburban neighborhood. And they're thinking, okay, you know, interesting place for a restaurant, right? But this thing's supposed to be, you know, very unique. So, all right, cool. So they pull up to this, uh, you know, pretty regular looking house and they're kind of looking around. They get out of their couple cars parked on the street and someone sort of looks like a waiter comes out from the back of the house and says, hey, you know, welcome. How are you? Bring you back. So they walk around this house and they open up into this garden in between the house and a shed. Not particularly dressed up. You know, there are a couple candles here and there. And so instantly this, this young couple takes their phones out and they're snapping pictures of everything, posting on Instagram. This is incredible, right? Uh, so the server sits them down and they basically don't see the server again for you know 25 minutes, taking forever. Um, but they don't care. They've gotten a place at this restaurant. They're not going to complain, right? Food finally comes out. It was not all that tasty, um, but again, they're taking pictures of it. You know, this is great. They've already rated it five stars on, on TripAdvisor. Oh my gosh, we were the first ones to get a reservation. This is amazing. Um, and so by the end of the night, they go home heroes, right? Well, the kicker is that there was never a restaurant called The Shed. Uh, its owner, Uba Butler, had never run a restaurant or served food in his life. The food tasted like frozen TV dinners because that's exactly what they were. He had basically tricked the TripAdvisor algorithm into making his ordinary backyard garden shed into the number one rated TripAdvisor restaurant for more than half a year. And people unwilling to admit that they had been duped continued to propagate the exceptional nature of this restaurant that never was. And if that's not a testament to how our herd mentality can lead us astray, I don't know what is. It's a, it's a great story. I love that story in your book. Um, why do many leading CEOs just follow their competitors? It seems like they, they talk about, oh, we love to take risks. We uh, want to attract people who are risk takers and visionaries. And then those people get decimated once they get to those companies. So why is that? And uh, how do they get beyond that? We have sort of organizational cognitive dissonance in this country and probably the world. I can only speak for the US, right? And it's, it's, you know, I can't tell you how many cultures that I've had as clients and they'll have some sort of core value like teamwork and they don't value teamwork. Basically, they value whatever the leader says goes. By the way, they'd be much better off to just say, hey, we don't value teamwork here. We value shut up and do your job. And if you like that sort of thing, then come work for us. And everyone would be like, well, 
at least you're honest about it. You know what I mean? Because the other, you know, saying we value all these things and, and then not valuing them, that's what causes distrust and disgruntled people who are upset and who come to work as zombies instead of as empowered individuals to help the organization thrive. And, and I mean, how many times, you know, Mark, you, you've been doing this a long time. I've been doing this a long time. How many times does a company hire an incredible employee who's fired up, is ready to come in and make the kind of changes and they, they, they put that first proposal on the table and bam, their head gets chopped off, right? And now they're not coming back again. <laughs> and, and all those best people leave. And how is that good for an organization? So unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, we're coming into a time when employees can just simply go to Glassdoor and say, hey, this uh, organization isn't everything it says it is. Here's the truth. And in a world like that, I want leaders out there to think long and hard about not only the optics of what they're putting out, but how, uh, how much integrity there is behind the optics. And I really mean what I, what I said earlier, that if a, an organization from the top down doesn't value something like, you know, we're, we're going to make decisions as a team, don't say it because there are plenty of people that don't care about teamwork either and they will come and work for you yeah, and they'll be perfectly right. happy there. So, yeah. you know, organizations do themselves a disservice by thinking they have to put on this, this front and, and everything's hunky dory and I'm fitting into some sort of mold. We're past that. We are past that. And as more and more information becomes available, the whole premise of the book is it's going to get harder and harder and less and less profitable to do anything but simply be honest and transparent. We learned it when we were four years old, and it's more true today than ever. How has the internet affected corporate behavior? Well, it's back to the transparency. You know, it, you think you look at Glassdoor.com, you look at Facebook, you look at Twitter. I mean, the whole, the whole thing, why does honesty work? It's because of the information symmetry we have. You know, it used to be that before we couldn't get data on whether a company polluted the environment in, you know, Uganda or whether, you know, it treated employees well and how much they got paid. And you know, we just didn't know as consumers. And as consumers, if we're faced with choices and we have more data to base those choices off of, we're going to make different decisions. I mean, that's, we've seen that through time. So what, what the main point is here is that right now there's an opportunity to capitalize on this, to use the internet, to use all these tools to communicate as honestly and transparency, uh, transparently and authentically as possible. Because right now it's still refreshing. It, honesty is still refreshing. In the future, Mark, I'm telling you right now, we're going to expect that. Because how long can an organization really go on saying one thing and doing another when everyone's tweeting about it anyway? It's, it's just not possible. Well, we'll find out after this election uh, if that can continue to go on. Well, well, that's an, you know, it's interesting you bring that up. And I really, you know, I've tried to stay as apolitical as possible because yeah, sure. I'm really on the side of honesty, right? Yeah. And on the side of honesty, I've had this conversation a couple of times where it's like, well, let's be honest about what it takes to create change. Let's be honest about what people in this country are showing that they want versus what we want them to want or think they want or whatever. We have someone who never lied about who he was, showed us exactly who he was, got elected for who he was, and is still who he was. So, you know, it, we can't always be linear in the way we, would, we define honesty. I think that actually shuts us down into assume, well, that person's a liar. And that's, well, did they tell you they were a liar? And are they a liar? And have they proven to be a liar? Then I'd say that's actually pretty honest. <laughs> we may not like it, but... 
It's funny you should say it because when I was teaching at one of the universities and I asked my students during the election uh, who they were voting for, and 80% were voting for Trump over Hillary, and I said, but what about this, this? I mean, I, I said, I'm, I'm not telling you who to vote for, but what about this? Yeah, but we know that's who he is. And so I, that was the difference to them between politicians who tell you one thing but mean something else and somebody like him who you don't, might not like anything he has to say, but is, it is what it is. And this is who, and he doesn't try to disguise it. I, I think but, the question we've answered is, would we rather, so everybody lies, as I say in the book, everybody lies. I lie, yeah. everybody lies. Yeah. Are we more comfortable knowing what people are lying about or not knowing? And I think if anything, you know, what's happened with, with last election is we're more comfortable knowing. And, yeah. and if anything, that proves my, you know, my point even more, no matter how you feel about it. You know, I don't feel about it one way or the other. I just think it's fascinating. Yeah, I, I, I do as well. So let's talk about what is conscious capitalism? Yeah. So conscious capitalism is an actual organization, but it's also a movement. And the idea is that we cannot create sustainable businesses that are only focused on providing shareholder value. Instead, we need to think more broadly about who the stakeholders are, whether those are employees, vendors, suppliers, even the environment as a stakeholder. This is a new idea. I mean, there was a time when you would call up a company and ask for their ESG report, and they would say, I don't even know what that stands for. <laughs> now, people, uh, leaders are leading with that sort of information on conference calls, right, and heralding it as part of their mission. So I think, again, you know, back to transparency, we know now uh, what a company's doing. Companies are getting wise to that and thinking to themselves, well, uh, we can make this business decision that might, uh, you know, screw a supplier or, or mistreat the environment. What are the pros and cons of people when they find that out? When, not if. And if instead we make a slightly different decision, not only can we avoid that pain, but we can capitalize on the better option. And that's my point, is honesty used strategically is how you can achieve amazing results. And it's one thing to be honest, but I recommend you go beyond even being honest and point to the honesty. Hey, we had this decision. We could have made decision B that we know people probably wouldn't have been happy with. And we consciously chose to do decision A. And while we don't want any awards for it, we do want everyone to know because it, it's part of what we stand for. We are only as good as our decisions and we hope you'll make similar decisions as well. Wow, what a great message. I mean, and, and it's very honest and straightforward. Uh, shocking to me when companies don't do that. I mean, can anybody tell me what happened to Volkswagen after their diesel emissions scandal? I have no idea. Did they improve anything? Did they fix it? How did they fix it? What a lost opportunity to communicate with us exactly how they were solving that problem to make sure it didn't happen again and letting us inside and bringing us along for the journey. Such a missed opportunity. I uh, love the Domino's story that you told, which I think has come along, a lot, along those lines. And I, and I knew um, uh, the CEO you talked about who handed it over, who became the athletic director at Michigan. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. So tell the, tell the um, domino story. And I think that's a great story to tell related to this. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. And, and what great folks over there. I mean, I even just sent uh, Russell, Russell Wiener as the president of Domino's USA a message the other day, just telling him about the book and got right back to me. And Peter, that's great. Just such, such, such nice people. Um, you know, talk about Volkswagen and what they didn't do. Domino's did it, right? They figured out in 2009, 2008, 
that uh, their pizza, frankly, wasn't very good. And at that point, they had options. You know, they had all this customer data. They could have just, you know, made their sauce a little better and run another ad campaign. And, you know, the CEO then, as, as you noted, you know, was on his way out. Dave Blandon. Dave. Brandon. Yep. That's Brandon, right. Dave Brandon. He didn't yeah. have to take any risks, but instead he approved a massive campaign that put his replacement, J. Patrick Doyle, right in the crosshairs. So literally months after Doyle gets into the CEO office, he goes on national TV and he says, uh, well, I'm sorry, uh, America. Turns out our pizza sucks and uh, you deserve better and we're going to fix it. And not only did they fix it, but they brought all the cameras in. They, they come into our kitchens, watch how we're reformulating our, our, uh, you know, our pizza. Let's bring the cameras out to houses, knock on doors. Hey, will you try this pizza? What do you think? How is it? They posted all that on YouTube. They just got honest over and over again with where they were running up against problems and what they needed to do to fix it and bringing everyone along for the ride. And Mark, if you had identified that, if you had looked at this CEO on national television telling everyone their product was terrible and had invested in them at that moment, you would have had a 3,000% return over the next 10 years. 3,000% just by telling people that your product sucks. That's how powerful honesty can be. And Carl Icahn would have fired him before he had that chance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. So now uh, you also write about uh, just capital and impact investing. And that's very prominent, especially in the early stage world, especially among people 35 and younger, where they feel that's really important for society. After this economic meltdown, will people, uh, will and do people still care about this? Yes, with an asterisk. So and maybe you can explain what those things are anyway. Totally, yeah. So the whole idea of, of impact investing is, is ensuring that the money you put into a company, either as an investor or even as a customer, supporter of any kind, uh, that the company is acting you know, justly as actual you know, just capital who puts out its, its list of 100 you know, most just companies defines it. And actually, they define just companies by what American people care about workers' rights, environmental rights, you know, all the stuff we've been talking about. Um, it turns out, by the way, caveat, that companies who actually employ those kinds of practices, you know, pay their people more, take care of the environment more, uh, have you know, supplier relationships that are vetted and checked for all those things, they actually have an 8% higher return on equity than their peers. It doesn't cost them to be more honest and transparent and just. They make more money because of it. So I think impact investors are waking up to this fact, right? Now, here's my, my asterisk on it. Uh, two things. One, I think the whole idea of impact investing will just become investing. Once people understand that, you know, companies that are employing those things are actually making more money. So it's not going to make sense to even separate the two. It's just going to become part of, uh, you know, what an investor looks for, not only future value of present cash flow, uh, you know, present value of future cash flows, but also, you know, all these other factors that are now being attributed to performance that we didn't even realize were part of the performance equation, the bottom line equation. Um, but my second caveat is, particularly from consumers, socioeconomics still very much apply, right? It's like folks who can afford to make choices on where they shop and what products they buy will in the aggregate, but folks who can't will most likely continue to be unable to pay five cents more for a product if they know that you know, that's going to take away from food on the table, right? So part of this has to be coming down market to help, you know, organizations understand that wrapping into their lower cost goods, 
all these really wonderful things isn't just good for attracting more customers, but it ultimately is going to be good for all, every level of their organization. We talked earlier about attracting talent, right? All those folks from managers on down are looking at where do I want to work? Do they abuse the environment? Do they, you know, how do they, how are they going to treat me? What kind of culture are they, you know, uh, are they authentic to themselves? These things are going to matter beyond the consumer. And that, that's really important. I taught 10 years at Wharton and all these students, let's say mostly 35 and under, that was probably the most important thing, Tim, because they said, look, I'm going to make money. I am going to make it, but I don't want to go to an organization that I can't be proud of when I go home and talk to my mom and dad about the organization or my friends or, right. or my significant other. So that's become really important. And now people are using that internet to research the hell out of these companies before they join them. And if they have bad baggage, they don't want to be part of that. Yep. And then these companies sit around and wonder, gosh, how come we have so much trouble attracting talent? I mean, we got a ping pong table. So weird. <laughs> and the foosball. Yeah. <laughs> what's the ROI on integrity and honesty? I mean, you mentioned about the 8%, but what's the overall? It's unlimited. It's unlimited, Mark. And the reason I say that is because it's not binary. It's not like you're honest or you're not honest. If you're unwilling to be honest about what's going on, in the world around you and what's going on with the others around you and your customers and your fellow executives and all that. And you're unwilling to be dishonest with yourself. There's a massive opportunity cost to that an unknown and huge opportunity cost, especially as compared to your competitors who are getting honest and using honesty strategically like the companies we've talked about and like the many more in the book. So there's sort of exponential sloping curves in both directions. The problem is that, fear comes into play, right? Uncertainty. Oh, that seems risky to just, just be honest. And what I hope folks see from this book is that the risk is actually in not being honest. It's in failing to be transparent and authentic and open-minded and willing to admit fault and ready for change and all the ways that I, I define uh, honesty as a strategy to achieve these results. So I want folks to be more afraid <laughs> of their competitors getting these strategies and using them than not. I think that's the difference between Steve Ballmer and the new CEO of Microsoft, where nobody cared about Microsoft before. I mean, they were going to live just because we had, we needed them for the most part. That's but right. now this guy has invigorated them and now they're attracting the best and brightest like they were under Bill Gates before. Exactly. It's not difficult. The blueprint is everywhere, but it, you can't even begin that conversation until you get honest about, all right, who are we? Where are we? You know, what do we need to do? What's it going to take? It, it has to start there. Uh, don't younger generations start out idealistic and re revert to skepticism and then cheating to attain goals over time? Not me. I went the opposite way. I, it shocks me to this day that I am the person to write a book about honesty. If you had told 25-year-old voted most likely to continue being a capitalist jerk, Peter, that I was going to write a book about honesty, I wouldn't have believed you at all. Um, and, and I want to make, I don't know if I said this earlier, but you know, the book, book you know, got a number one new release in, in ethics on Amazon. That's wonderful. It is not an ethics book. The reason why I've ended up talking about honesty is not because I'm an idealist, but because this stuff works. And it works because of the environment we live in. And it works because people are fed up with all the BS and all the examples that you and I have talked through. 
It's the way to achieve results in the world we live in. And I think for the rest of the 21st century, that's why I talk about honesty. I listen, I think people should be honest. I think they should be ethical and moral and all that happy horse crap, but I'm, you know, I, I'm sorry to hear you went to, you know, you're a Wharton guy. I'm an Columbia <laughs> guy. I'm all about the money. Like this is about how to make crap tons of money in our world. The way I am as surprised as anyone, Mark, to find that the way is honesty. I, you know, I'm on the board of my condo association and all the, a lot of the people hated all the past boards, but we're so transparent that they won't let us step down. And, you know, we tell them, oh, we made this mistake or somebody comes up with an idea. We say, oh, we don't say, oh, we already looked at that. We say, go ahead, investigate and come back to us and tell us what you find. It's not that and hard, is it? People saved us $150,000 on our electric bill. A woman said, how about if I negotiate the $12 million loan? And we said, sure, jump in. And now people who hated the board won't let us off. And so I think there's a huge appreciation for that. It's, um, it's how so does, easy. How it's does the so concept easy. of honesty affect innovation? Uh, oh, gosh. I mean, it's, you brought up Microsoft, right? It's like yeah. we can drift into oblivion uh, or we can get honest about what we know and what we don't know, what needs to change. You know, the story behind Quicken Loans and Rocket Mortgage, and we got into a little bit, right? But they actually bring in young people every year. Like, I don't remember the exact number. It's at least hundreds of young interns out of college. And they, their culture is very much like, we don't know. I mean, there's a, there's a YouTube video of a, an employee and a manager talking and the employee wanted to like run with this idea. And the manager's like, just stop talking. Like, I don't, it sounds cool. I have no idea. Go do it. And then tell me if it works or not. So, <laughs> you know, they're so honest about like, we have, we don't know. We don't know what the next best thing is. I'm certainly not going to stop you. Seems like a reasonable idea. It has to do with mortgages. Yeah. Let's do that and find out in an environment that's honest about that. You know, yeah, we don't, we don't really know. Seems let's do it. Let's try it. Um, you know, what an honest approach, by the way, every culture that says they want to be entrepreneurial and then aren't, they need to take a page out of Quicken's book. Uh, but you can imagine that when you have uh, 50 people, 100 people, 1,000 people, 10,000 people with that approach, of course, someone's going to bring an interesting idea to the table. And I, if I remember correctly, Rocket Mortgage came from an intern who was like, how come we have to kill a tree every time we want to get a mortgage? That doesn't make any sense. I have a smartphone. Phone knows who I am. Why can't I just use that? And they looked at them. And they were like, I don't know. Yeah, seems like a good idea. Why don't you go do that? <laughs> Let me know how it goes. You know, it, it's, it's really that simple. So obviously, you know, Microsoft, they had similar sort of things like, hey, I'm sure there are really good ideas here. By the way, every time I've done focus groups and interviews with frontline employees and then with executives, the employees always know. They always know the truth. They always know what to do. One time I was hired to revamp a system at a company and inside of 90 minutes, the, this group of about 20 frontline employees had solved every problem that management had brought me in to solve. So I was like, great, as usual, right? I had been through this before. Like I, I know the insights always come from frontline employees. And so I bring all that back to the executive team. Like you asked us to solve problem A, here's the solution. Your own employees have it. There you go. And they were like, ooh, yeah, I don't know. That <laughs> seems, uh, seems expensive and it seems like, you know, we, we probably should do it, but we, I'm like, wait, you paid me money to bring you this. This, by the way, is the platform you offer customers. We're not talking about like some left field thing. This is <laughs> like the thing you offer. And they still couldn't get out. And they're like, nah, yeah, no, they didn't do it. They didn't do it. And their employees were so angry 
before, right? So in the meeting with me, they're saying, we've been saying this for years. We've done all the research. They ask us to go get the data. We get the data. We pass it back. Here's what we have to do. The customers love it. And you can imagine after they took all those employees through this exercise, finally were being heard. Can you imagine the vitriol after they found out that the managers still were going to reject what they knew to be true? Who wants to work in an environment like that? So, you know, it's directly correlated to innovation. There is no innovation when we have these unnatural blockers, these, these flaws in the transfer of information around our organizations. Can't happen. So what are the top three things that will drive firms to switch from the current model to honesty? <sighs> Some really honest executive <laughs> who's willing to buy a copy of Honest to Greatness <laughs> for all of their, <laughs> and I'm serious. I mean, it's going to take, uh, it takes a dislodging, right? The problem with this, Mark, and uh, I've had this, this talk before is, a book like this has a measure of self-selection. What I mean by that is folks who naturally believe what you and I believe will pick up the book and will benefit from it. And the folks that need to be more honest because they're not, as we define it, they already think they are. It's just like self-awareness. You know, as soon as someone tells me, oh, I'm, I'm so honest. I, oh yeah, I'm self-aware. I know they're not because I'm the first person to tell you I'm not self-aware, not even particularly honest. That's the <laughs> point. But that's the point of honesty. We, we can never admit we are. We've already lost the war if we do. There are just ever higher levels of, of awareness. So it's going to take a dislodging, right? An activist investor that says, hey, you guys need to be more honest. Uh, or a key CEO or a key C-suite exec. So we need to do this. Now, that said, I have a whole chapter dedicated to middle managers and frontline employees. How do you wield honesty in your organization, even if you have no formal authority? And there are ways, and there, the CEOs I interview in the book tell, hey, this is what I would want my employees to do, and this is how you do it. And I think one of the big takeaways here has to be you are a leader no matter where you are in your organization. And if you realize that and you're willing to fight for it, you can achieve incredible, incredible things. In your book, you talked about phenomenal returns when you got clients uh, after interviewing your clients' best clients. Uh, in my marketing practice, I did the same thing as you do over the last 30 years. I found that this to be flawless. I mean, it's not rocket scientists. You ask the clients these questions, and they tell you, tell you. <laughs> they've already drawn the roadmap for you. All you have to do is just follow it. It's not That's brain right. surgery. No, it's and not. yet these companies still don't do it. Could you please talk about what questions you asked and what you learned and how that drives future success of a business? And what kinds of questions should be asked? You know, of, when you're the, of the best clients? Yeah. If you owned my business, what would you do? That's such a good one because they love being put in it. So anyone likes being put in a position of power, right? If we're going to get honest, we need to get honest about the size of our egos. Right? We talked about herd mentality earlier. We talked about all these things. If we understand the role that ego plays, particularly in executives who have been promoted, then we will win. Every client loves being put on a pedestal, say, you're such a leader. You are so smart. If you were in my position, you owned this company. What are the first two, three, five things you would do? Remarkable question. You will learn so much. And not only have I found people have answers, they'll reflect on it and they'll email me three days later, 10 days later, two months later. Peter, God, I was thinking about that because you know I'm such a thinker and I think you should do X, Y, and Z. It's so good. I think they find themselves responsible because I'll ask the question and Mark, and I'll say, oh, what's the best way to market to you? And they'll give me 
bullshit about like email newsletters or whatever. Yeah. And then three questions later, I'll say, if you were in charge of marketing, what would you do? They don't even go to the same things they just told me. Totally. And then they tell me three things. And those things are a hundred percent right. A hundred percent of the time. Yeah. I think, I think it's great. Please talk about the hourglass of honesty. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. You know, the hourglass is the central framework of the book, the one that I had to spend, um, you know, lots of sleepless nights developing myself. I'm going to try to find it while I'm talking through it. The reason it's shaped like an hourglass is because it is essentially a transformation technique. And it's, you know, this is really, you know, if you ask really, Mark, what business am I in? I am in the transformation business. I want CEOs to have transformations. I want, uh, you know, organizations to have transformations. So this is the hourglass and it works like this. First, we need to get honest about the community, right? We need to get honest about what's going on in the world around us. We live in a society where there's a pandemic, obviously, not only a pandemic of COVID-19, but a pandemic of dishonesty and distrust. We live in a time of continued racial injustice, continued gender bias, gender fluidity, right? Some of these things we've never even seen before that society is now grappling with. And as operators in a, in, within a broader context, we can't just put our heads in the sand about this stuff. You know, we need to be honest about what's going on and how our employees are feeling about it and so on and so forth, which brings us to the next level, which is getting honest with and about the others around us. You know, if we've talked, Mark, sometimes we need to be honest with people, okay? Tell them like it is, be straight with them. Other times we need to be honest about them, about their own biases and self-limiting beliefs and ego and how, how they may be forming opinions that are different from our own, even with the same information. So we need to get honest about how they're motivated and, and therefore how we might use techniques to motivate them in return. And finally, we need to get honest with and about ourselves you know, with our own biases and ego and self-limiting beliefs as a leader. Now, here's what happens. After you get honest on those three levels and, and finally honest with yourself, who you really are and what you really want, if you think about it, you're instantly changed. You know, honest Mark is very different than dishonest Mark. You know, honest Mark has different hopes, fears, beliefs, aspirations, right? You're essentially yeah. a different person. And when you're honest like that, and, and again, at the leadership and as an organization level, you end up coming back out the other side. You end up changing the others around you to fit who you really are and what you really want. And that can be your colleagues, coworkers, employees, clients, family, friends, right? And when you do that, when you change the others around you, that's how you can bend the community towards you and create industry dominating success. And in all the case studies I go over in the book, I show you how the person or the organization used that same framework over and over and over again to create transformational outcomes. Uh, and w one of the listeners here is also an author himself, Mark Arnett. Annette, A-N-N-E-T-T. -T, and he said, I wrote a book on treating ethical decisions as an investment called Scruples, who, ne who needs them? Ah, people, we don't need them. It gets in the way of making money. Have you considered similar premises? That's what he's asking. Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. Uh, and maybe I'll, re maybe I'll read it back again. He wrote a book on uh, investment called Scruples, who needs them? Have you considered a similar premise? You know, uh, I guess, do people actually need scruples? Well, it, it depends. I mean, again, I want to go back to what I said earlier, that I think ethics is great. I think having scruples is great. I think being a good person is wonderful. 
Um, it just turns out that a lot of these scruples that, that I think you're referring to, things like integrity and honesty and transparency, doing what you say you're going to do, right now they're producing results. Because right now we're on this precipice of a world that's come off of a lot of scandals. And in that environment, uh, you know, as, you know, as Marx gave the excellent um, you know, story about his condo association. I mean, if you, if you think honesty is the best policy, I mean, if it can work for Domino's Pizza and a condo association, come on now. I mean, it, it works universally. It doesn't matter. So, you know, I want to make the distinction that scruples work right now, not simply because they're nice to have, but because we all value them in a society that has grown a bit dishonest with itself. Mark has said, my question was related to treating ethics as an investment. And I kind of think you answered that yeah, yeah. with your response. Um, and, and let's see if we can quickly squeeze in two more answers to two other questions. Uh, can you quickly tell the story about the Girl Scout <laughs> who, uh, related to honest salesmanship and how did companies and salespeople accomplish this? I, by the way, I found it hard to believe that that 11-year-old girl wrote that. And if she did, she, did. she should already be in Columbia or Harvard already. Yeah. I know she did. And she's a remarkable uh, girl and um, she's been a good cheerleader for the book. So uh, I'll tell it quick because then I've got another one of these coming up. Um, 11 year old Girl Scout wants to sell Girl Scout cookies, right? Being the little capitalist that she is, she asks her dad, you know, who do we know uh, that can buy a lot of cookies? Turns out dad had a friend who was a venture capitalist, but he didn't connect them or anything. Charlotte took that email and sent him a nice note. And uh, in the note, she goes, uh, so Girl Scouts of America have, uh, in my opinion, uh, swung towards false advertising in the past. I don't want to do that to my new client. So I'm going to be very honest with you about which cookies are good and bad. She proceeded to give them a rating between zero and 10. Some got a 10. Others got uh, a one or a zero. She called some as flavorless as dirt and a gluten-free wasteland. <laughs> and basically said, don't buy these. If you're going to buy cookies or buy these ones, don't buy those ones. You should know. You should know this. And so uh, the venture capitalist looked at this and immediately thought to himself, well, if all the entrepreneurs I invest in had this kind of sales approach, that'd probably be even more successful. And what, you know, we talked earlier about opportunity cost, right? She could have just said, hey, do you want to buy some cookies? I want to send some of these to troops overseas. Do you want to? And he would have said, yeah, buy, you know, 50 boxes. But instead... The letter, because it was so remarkable, so honest, got shared and shared and shared. And it got shared so widely that she eventually sold 30,000 boxes of Girl Scout cookies. She crashed her website once again by telling people which products were bad and good. So it, honesty works. Not everybody appreciates it, but it does work. Works. In, in all areas of life. Yes. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today. Um, I thought, Peter, it was great. And we saw from the responses of those who were uh, listening in that they loved this interview. And I look forward to your next book. You got to do another book. I have one in me. I already know what it'll be, but I need some time off. Trust me, this has been four years in the making. So, Well, I look forward to the next one. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Have a safe weekend and hope you will all buy uh, Peter's book, Honest to Greatness. Please do. Have Available everywhere day. books are sold. Take care. Thanks for being honest, Mark.